Please turn again to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Hear God's word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. This is the second of three cosmic battles between Jesus and his enemies. Last week... He simply, by the word of his power, stilled a storm, the wind and the waves. This week, he comes face to face with a legion of demons. And in the next passage, we'll see he comes up against both sickness and death. Our passage is generally in two parts here. Verses 1 through 13, the freeing of the man from the demonic possession. And then verses 14 through 20, the commission for the man to go out and tell about Jesus. So that's how we'll look at the passage today. First, how Christ frees the man in verses 1 through 13, and then second, how Christ sends the man in verses 14 through 20. We're looking at how Christ frees this man who was possessed by a legion of demons, how Christ brings his people into the kingdom of light. Mark's storytelling here in this passage is remarkably complex compared to prior stories. He has a lot of themes that he reintroduces. You may have, as we read, noticed there are themes, maybe some some events that you thought, maybe I feel like I've read that before. You have. Mark is bringing back things that he's talked about before and bringing them all together here in Mark chapter 5. For example, the cleansing 
the cleansing elements. So Jesus came and he encountered, he encountered the leper back in Mark chapter one. In this case, he comes to a Gentile man in a Gentile region. So there's uncleanness there who lived among the tombs. There's uncleanness and being around the dead. He had an unclean spirit and there were pigs living nearby, all of which are unclean to the Jewish people. And we see Jesus even here comes to grow his kingdom. He's on the mission of advancing the kingdom of God, and he does so by the power of his word. And he even has concern for the Gentile, unclean, demon-possessed man. And there are other themes, such as when he throws the pigs into the sea. We talked about the sea last week, how Christ has power over the sea. And here, Christ uses the sea as an indicator of his authority over the demon powers. And Mark, from the beginning, has been disclosing little by little. The people have started to understand in the story, little by little, who Jesus is and that he is divine. He is the Son of God. And the demons here understand who he is, just like the demons understood back in Mark chapter 1, when the man with the unclean spirit came to Jesus in the synagogue as he was teaching. And in both cases, they identify who this Jesus is and bow down before the God-man. And there are lots of parallels between how that story in the synagogue was told and how Mark tells the story here. How the demons try to use Jesus' name to gain an advantage on him. How Jesus, by his word, rebukes the demons and calls them out. And how Jesus ends victoriously. Now here, this man possesses more than just one demon. It's a legion, which literally means... An army of 6,000, but in this context, it's, it's simply a large number. Could be 6,000, it could be at least 2,000 because it had the, the ability to cast a herd of 2,000 pigs or to possess a herd of 2,000 pigs. But you notice by the way the man with the unclean spirit approaches Jesus that the fate of the demons was never really in question. They knew who Jesus was. They saw his authority. The authority of Christ that Mark has been elevating throughout this book comes in grand explanation to us here. No one could bind this man. The legion of demons had a strength that no human could combat. He had often been bound with shackles and chains and he had wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him, we see in verse 4. This man was tortured for a long time by these demons. And as soon as Jesus shows up, the power system changes. When he saw Jesus, verse 6, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In other words, leave me alone. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The irony in that after the legion had for so long tormented the man, he begs not to be tormented. And we know that the forces of evil, all those in league with Satan, when we read Revelation 20, we know that their destiny is secure in the lake of fire where they will be bound with chains. This is the same language Mark is using. Bound with chains, cast into the lake of fire, and tormented. Same language Mark uses. Tormented forever and ever. 
The demons know this is where they're headed. They know the power of Jesus Christ as soon as they see it, and they beg that now is not the time. So they ask for the next best thing. They ask that they might go into the pigs. Now, why the pigs? Because if they have a body to possess, they have some semblance that they have authority and power in a region. They didn't want to leave the country because this is where they had authority. When Luke tells the story, the demons asked not to be cast into the abyss, which was right there before them in the Sea of Galilee. In Mark's telling, they asked not to be cast out of the country, which we can assume is the same thing, to be cast away from the land that they, where they had authority into the land where they have no power. And so they go into the pigs. And Jesus gives them permission. And I think this is a little bit of a, um, I don't know the right word. Sassy may not be the right word. Um, this, is, this is Jesus playing games in some sense with the demons. He says, you don't want to go into the abyss. You don't want to be cast out of the country. You don't want to be rendered powerless. Sure, go into the pigs. And then where do the pigs end up? In the abyss, exactly where the demons do not want to go. Jesus has complete authority in this whole situation. The demons never questioned it. And now the people get to see it as the pigs fall into the lake. The place of death the place of destruction, the place of chaos to the mind of these people. And now the legion of demons dwell without power in the deep, in the abyss over which we already know Jesus has authority. And when the people come and they see a great calm, remember that language from calming the storm, when they come and they see a great calm in this man who was once demon-possessed, he's sitting there in his right mind and clothed, they are terrified. Because they realize they have encountered someone who is greater than even the legion of demons that used to inhabit this man. They got used to living with that demon-possessed man there. But they don't know how to live with this kind of power in their midst. And so they, with great fear, beg him to leave. This is great authority possessed by Jesus. They have never encountered anything like it. Question for us. We, we're not tormented like this, as far as, as far as we know. This, this kind of tormenting does not happen to us today. So how is this relevant? John Calvin says it really well. He says, though we are not tortured by the devil, yet he holds us as his slaves until the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny Naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about till he restores us to soundness of mind. We, we must realize that our lives have been transformed just like this demon-possessed man's life was freed from bondage. We also have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Every single one of us was slave to the corruptions of the flesh, unable to do anything except what sin demanded until Jesus gave us by his spirit the freedom and the ability to walk in new life and to look to Jesus and to live. Christ's power has transformed us as well as he brings us into the kingdom of light. That's a brief survey of all these themes coming together here in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Themes we've seen have come up throughout the book so far. What's really notable is that here, all these things that Jesus has prior done in the Jewish realm, he is now doing in the Gentile country. 
He is just as much about advancing the kingdom of God in the Gentile world as he is in the Jewish world. And as he sent out the apostles to the Jewish people, he gives a similar, not identical, but a similar command to this man as well. Tells him to go and to tell what Christ has done for him. This is interesting because so far in the book, Jesus has only commanded silence. As people have witnessed his, his, uh, his power, he says, don't, go tell, don't, don't tell anybody. Yet in this case, he says, go and tell. We must ask why that is. I think it's the setting. It's the fact that in the Gentile world, there are no false concepts of who the Messiah is. There's not going to be rumor that the Jewish revolutionary is now on the scene and he's going to rise against the government. If the word circulates in the Jewish, excuse me, in the Gentile realms about Jesus, this is the advance of the kingdom of God there and it is proper time. In the Jewish world, Christ knows it is not the proper time for the kingdom to advance because he must die in the Jewish world. So Jesus tells this man, first of all, to go to his friends. Verse 19, the man wanted to come with Jesus. Although the rest of the people who had witnessed this begged Jesus to leave, yet this man wanted to come with Jesus, which is proof that not everybody who sees Jesus' power is going to submit to it and follow it. But this man does because of the spirit at work in him. Verse 19, Jesus did not permit this man to come with him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go home to your friends, to your people, your, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your kinsmen. That's the hardest task. Aren't our family members who don't know the Lord the hardest ones to talk to? And then our friends, we'd rather just preserve that friendship than to ruffle it with Jesus. And our neighbors, don't good fences make good neighbors? We don't want to talk to them about these things. Yet Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them. And this man did, and he also went out to the Decapolis, the region of 10 cities, which indicates that he likely traveled from town to town. This became his new job, was to bring the good news of Jesus. And we see that the next time Jesus shows up on the scene in chapter 6, they were ready to see Jesus. They brought lots of people to him. So his message had been going out. And Jesus tells, them, tells this man to tell them. And this man does that, Mark tells us, that he proclaims what Jesus has done for him, just like Jesus had proclaimed the kingdom of God, just like the disciples were preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God. This is the same gospel that was proclaimed by Christ in chapter one. And now a Gentile is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ by God's design and God's advance of the kingdom. So what exactly did he tell them? What is the proclamation of the gospel? What is this? Well, we get some more details here in this story. What is the message of the Christian? It says in verse 19, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy 
on you. He doesn't say, go tell them how nice their life is going to be. He doesn't say, go show them with code actions and hope that they figure out that you're a Christian. He doesn't say, tell them how their city will become a picture of heaven if they believe in Jesus. He doesn't say, tell them that God approves of them in their state of sin. He says, tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And so this freedman proclaims what the Lord, that is Jesus, has done for him. He has released him from his bondage to Satan. This man who was once possessed by a legion of demons that no man could could conquer. He has exercised, Jesus has exercised control over this man's previous enemy. And he has brought the man into the kingdom of God. He has restored the man to relationship with God and with others. And he has given the man a purpose, an identity, a purpose of spreading the good news as an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven. He's no longer the demon-possessed man. He is the freed man. And Jesus says, tell them how he has had mercy on you. This man was unclean to the Jewish world, but he was also despised by the Gentiles. He had the reputation of being the one who can't be bound, the one who lived out by the tombs. They continue to call him the demon-possessed man, even in Mark's narrative here. He was a sinful man. He deserves death because of his offenses against the God of heaven. And there would have been no injustice on Jesus' part if he had left the man as he was. But Jesus had mercy on him. Jesus saved him from his captor, just as he has had mercy on every single one of his children who trusts in Jesus, sparing us from the death that we deserve. And as this man went out and spread this good news, we see not everyone believed. Everyone marveled, Mark says, but that that does not imply that they believed. They may have been confused. Some might have outright rejected it. They thought, "That's, that's interesting, not for me. But others must have. Because once again, when Jesus returns, they welcome him. But we must remember the parable of the seed growing that Mark has already told us. This, this freed man's job is not to grow. His job is to tell, and God grows. Remember that parable. God is the one who uses the power of the word that is told to grow the seed into a full head of grain that will be ready on the day of the harvest. How did you and I, those who believe in Christ, how did we come to know Christ? It's because somebody was faithful to this command to tell how much the Lord had done for them and how the Lord has had mercy on them. That is how God drew us to Christ by His Spirit. This word proclaimed, how are they to believe unless someone tells them? And so we too share this message of what the Lord has done for us and how He has had mercy. We saw Christ freeze the man. We saw Christ sends the man. And now we need to ask, what does this mean for us? What about us? Well, the task of all those who have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light is the same as this man's. We have the task of telling what the Lord has done for us and how he has had mercy on us. And that is also to our friends and to our family and to our neighbors and to those in our city. That is why this church exists, because we want to be a place where we tell about what Christ has done in this place. But we also individually must invite people 
We must tell them what Christ has done. And we, we, we combat that with all kinds of fears and insecurities, saying, oh, I'm just, I'm not good at it. I clam up. We say, look at all that Christ has done for me. How in the world am I supposed to replicate that kind of miracle in somebody else's life? It's a tall order, friends, taller than any of us can accomplish to free people from their spiritual bondage. That's why that's not our job. Our job is to tell them and to let God work the miracle in their hearts. So when we think that the weight of their conversion rests on our shoulders, we wonder, oh, maybe we won't say the right words. or Maybe we start to crumble under the weight of it. Remember, this is Christ's work. And even when we realize that we can't convert them, but only the Holy Spirit can, we still come up with excuses. And we wonder if we'll have any effect because we're convinced that we can't really change their mind. And we call, well, it's not pessimistic, it's realistic, right? That's our excuse. We're afraid that other people will scoff at us. The people that we're trying to impress with the way that we dress and the way that we live, we think, oh, they're going to be unimpressed if they find out that I'm weak and need a savior. And we try to come up with the most worldly, attractive things about the faith to tell other people about it and to invite them in. Oh, the music's the best. Our music is great. The music, we, 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 we brag about our music style or our music style is this way or the building is beautiful or the people are so nice. Guys, these are great. These are good things. But why don't we tell them the most important things? Why don't we share the most powerful part of the message? Why don't we tell them that the eternal truth of God's word directs everything we do? That the sacrifice of our Savior on the cross is the forgiveness of our sins, which we celebrate and proclaim and sing about and reflect on. Why don't we tell them that if they trust in Jesus, their sins, their words, their actions, their thoughts, and their very stance against God are forgiven just as he has done for us? just as he has had mercy on us, so he will for them. The penalty that you deserve has been taken by the God-man Jesus Christ when he died upon the cross. And the way to freedom from death into life is by believing in this gospel and this Savior. Why do we withhold the most important parts? Why do we not tell them what the Lord has done for us and that he has had mercy on us? When we talk to other people, It's not a sales pitch for church. It's not about how other people are going to view us. It's not about selling them our product. It's so much bigger than that. So I encourage us, Christ Presbyterian Church, be faithful in telling about Jesus. When we believe in this Jesus, we obey It's an obedience of faith. You've heard that phrase, the obedience that comes from faith. Charles Spurgeon has some helpful thoughts on what this obedience of faith looks like. And here are four of the things that that he, he mentioned. First of all, the obedience of faith, because we believe in Jesus Christ and we obey him. That obedience is first of all prompt. When Abraham was called, Abraham went. When the demon-possessed man was told to go out, he went. As my grandpa says, when I say jump, jump, then ask how high. Appropriate instructions will be given at the right time, but obedience comes quickly. Let's be prompt 
obeyers. Let's tell somebody this day about Jesus Christ. The obedience of faith is also exact obedience. As a teacher, we know there are lots of students who like to kind of obey and then do the rest their way. As a former teacher, there's no halfway obedience. There's no watered down easy interpretation of the command. Putting a Bible verse in our social media bio isn't bad, but if that's all you do, it's not telling what the Lord has done for you. We often have good intentions. We begin obeying, but as soon as something becomes difficult or we get busy, we stop. If you recall parables from earlier as well, this may reveal a rocky soil. And we need to ask if we truly do, if that seed has actually taken root in such a heart. And then there's also the obedience of faith is practical. It's practical. The, command, the commanded action is clear. Yet we often snuff out the practical obedience by over-reasoning, over-analyzing, over-thinking, turning it into a theoretical battle rather than a practical get-up-and-obey response. We reason our ways out of it. Let's obey by going practically and telling. And this obedience is far-seeing. It looks beyond what is right in front of us. We obey because our sights are set on the promise of life to come. And that means that the temporary inconveniences and hurdles of this life, such as the loss of material success or the negative feedback we fear from others, these cannot hinder our obedience. And there are sacrifices to be made. We will lose things. Like when you go to your grandma's house for Thanksgiving dinner. You lose the opportunity to eat your Hot Pockets in your freezer at home. But you've chosen something so much better. You've chosen the feast. And so when we choose to follow Christ, yes, we lose some worldly things, but they're just hot pockets in the freezer. We lose worldly attachments, reputations, comforts, wealth, or whatever is back in the freezer at home because we choose to obey. And this changes us. When we obey, we, we grow. We mature. We, the kingdom advances as God wills. We, we scatter the seed and God brings the growth. And as those parables were explaining, that's how it happens. Now we see it happening in the Gentile world. And we can see it happen in our world if we're faithful to tell others what the Lord has done for us. And it also changes us. Three more things that Spurgeon says about how we grow when we obey. He says we, we live, we then end up living lives of safety. Lives of safety. It sounds like the prosperity gospel. Let me explain. When we steer ourselves, when we steer our own lives, we veer very close to trees and to cliffs. And eventually we will steer ourselves into a spiritually fatal accident. But when we follow in obedience what God has commanded, we are on the heaven-bound course, the safe course that God has commanded for us. And he protects us. And when we obey, we live the lives of the highest honor. Who else on this earth lives as an ambassador of the creator? No one besides Christians. No, they're merely ambassadors for themselves, their kingdom, their dishonorable kingdoms will crumble and they will end in embarrassment. Our kingdom will win. And so we get to be honorable ambassadors of the victorious king. And lastly, when we obey, we live lives that others 
can imitate. We live lives that others can imitate. And this means a lot more to me now that I have a son. Have you ever wondered, what can I do with my life that others can look up to and it'll be meaningful and, they'll, and, and if they imitate me, what kind of example can I set? The answer is a life of service and obedience to Christ's commands. A life that tells what the Lord has done for you. A life that responds to the Spirit's conviction and obedience. That's a life worth imitating. And I have one last point for us. When we remember that it is Christ who frees us. When we remember that it is Christ who sends us. And when we respond in obedience, we are forced to pray. We have to pray. Because we realize none of this has been in our strength anyway. And for our telling to have any fruit is not going to be in our strength. So we have to pray. It makes us dependent on the only one who is, in fact, reliable. And so we pray for our neighbors. And we pray for our family members. And we pray that the conversation we're about to have would yield fruit. That the seed would take root and that God would grow it. We have to depend on him. So we're going to pray to close this sermon specifically for our friends that do not know Christ, our neighbors, our family members. And we're going to pray that we would act in the obedience of faith so that those who do not know Jesus, maybe even if some who are here tonight, that those who do not know Jesus would receive the message of what the Lord has done and how he has had mercy that they would place their faith in that Jesus and be saved. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, this whole mission is in your strength. Because you loved and elected before the foundation of the world, because you covenanted to come, Jesus Christ, to come and to be our Savior, and because the Holy Spirit has worked to bring the fruit of the seed as it is scattered, we admit we are entirely dependent on you. We pray for our neighbors. We have specific people in mind when we think of our unbelieving neighbors. We pray that you would soften their hearts. We pray that we would tell them about Jesus and that it would sink in. And we pray that our lives would also support the message that we tell them. Our actions and our words would have integrity. And we think about our friends, the ones we see regularly, with whom we're just too afraid to broach the topic of religion with. We pray that you would work on their hearts even now. That we would have the confidence to tell them what the Lord has done for us. And we think of our family, our cousins, our aunts and uncles, parents, children, nieces, nephews, those who don't know you. Our hearts break. We want them to know Jesus Christ, to look to him, to see the sacrifice on the cross. And how will they believe unless we tell them what the Lord has done for us, how he has had mercy on us? Would we not be ashamed of the gospel? Would we, 
like the freed man in Mark 5. Go and make our lives about the message of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what Jesus has done, that it is the power of salvation to all who believe. It's in his name we pray. Amen.